Hello and welcome to the Smart Play podcast. Uh, today with me, I have got Mark Evans, a strategic growth marketer and fractional CMO for the B2B space and B2B SaaS companies. Hi, Mark. How are you doing? I'm great, Joseph. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Always happy to talk about marketing. Yeah, yeah. No, thanks for joining me. I'm, I'm excited to get into the, the conversation and um, sort of pick your brains about the world of strategic growth and, and in particular, um, sort of fractional CMOs and uh, and sort of seeing a lot in that space recently. So um, I guess we'll kick things off. Do, do you want to tell people a bit about yourself and your background? Sure. Um, originally, I started off as a newspaper reporter. Uh, worked for two of Canada's national newspapers, along with Bloomberg News, and I stumbled into marketing in 2008, just at the time of the global credit crisis. Was seemed like a terrible time to start a business, but actually was uh, pretty good timing. The fact that uh, I was a cheap and cheerful option for a lot of companies looking to save money. And over the last 15 years, I've specialized in working primarily with early stage companies, mostly. $5 million or less, they have a product, they have sales, but they're not doing very much marketing. So I set the stage, establish rock solid foundations and uh, get them going with brand positioning, marketing strategies, and and some some basic tactical execution to, to get the ball rolling. So anybody who's looking to get their marketing going, we should talk. Yeah, yeah, no, it sounds it. And uh, it sounds like a, a good place to, uh, that sort of area where companies are approaching that mark I feel like they normally have maybe one or two marketers on the team, but there's very little strategy in place or anything like that. In my experience, that's been the case anyway. Um, so definitely a good time to start thinking about, okay, how do we lay the foundations and really start growing this thing now, right? Yeah, I mean, I mean, for a lot of companies, it really starts with the, especially tech companies, it starts with the CEO, founder. They're usually a, a tech person, the engineer. They're focused on product. Once they've done the product, then they go into sales mode and try to drive revenue so they can raise capital and they forget about marketing it isn't part of the original mix it should be it should be a three-legged stool sales product marketing but it doesn't work that way so by the time they turn their sites to marketing they lean into tactics let's do social media let's create some content let's go to some conferences but there's very little focus on strategy or positioning and that's where a lot of companies fall down so they need to hire a third party to help them get there yeah yeah no i see way too much of that myself um companies just sort of dump, jump in with those tactics and not even questioning why they should be using those tactics in the first place they're just like let's do what everybody else is doing let's see what we see on social or um let's see what people are talking about at the moment so no makes a lot of sense and uh, a cool field to play in um i'm a big fan of strategy first um and stuff like that so uh so you've been doing um this sort of strategic advice for a while now uh, and um, operating as a fractional CMO. Do you want to tell me um, sort of a bit about how the the role as a fractional CMO and how that works? Yeah, the fractional CMO is a really complicated uh, answer. Well, maybe it's not complicated, but you need to educate uh, prospects about what it means because for different companies a fractional cmo can do different things so a fractional cmo can do an hour a week a day a week two days a week three days a week really they're a part-time cmo and the advantage is that you don't have to pay them a full-time salary a fractional cmo is 150 to 250 thousand dollars a year plus perks plus options and it's expensive and a lot of companies don't need a full-time fractional cmo so hiring somebody part-time 
is basically the best of both worlds. You get to eat your cake and have it too. Sure. And then they come in different shapes and sizes, depending on what kind of marketing you want to do. So if you're someone like I'm a fractional CMO whose expertise is around content marketing and branding and positioning, but you wouldn't want to hire me if your company is focused on performance marketing, if you lean hard into advertising uh, um, and leveraging hardcore social media, I'm, I have the of wrong skill set for that. So just because you're fractional CMO doesn't mean that you're a jack of all trades. So that's one of the things companies need to be careful of when they're looking for a fractional CMO is a, is it the right fit right now? Do we really need a fractional CMO? And if we do hire one, who's the person who's going to align with the kind of marketing that we should be doing? Yeah. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And, uh, and I think that probably applies to, um, both full-time and fractional CMOs, right? Uh, like that sort of what's their background, what's their core skill set, And is that person right for the approach that the business needs? Yeah. For the most part, an entrepreneur should have a pretty good feel about the marketing that they want to do. So for example, okay, we're going to do content marketing. We're also going to have to do some serious email marketing. And of course, a little bit of advertising, but we want somebody with, with those particular skill sets. So, you know, from the get go, pretty have a, a general idea of who you're looking for, uh, which makes your life easier. But then it's a matter of how do I find that person who has the right skill set and how do they work? What's their operating style? And do I like and trust this person? Because I see marketing, especially when you're a hired gun, as a relationship, as a partnership. And you want to make sure that you agree on the rules of engagement. You want to make sure that you have the same operating style and that you can work together. Because if it doesn't work, then you've wasted time, money, and effort of bringing of, on a marketing course, leader yeah. who doesn't, you know. But so that's it's it's a very realistic and pragmatic a way to hiring a marketing leader. Yeah, no, um, again, makes a lot of sense. So the, like, I always talk about this as well, like the relationships within a company, like, you know, bringing on a CMO and stuff like that, like they are, that they are the company itself, right? So that, that, that's how you, you're going to move forward. That's how you make the right decisions. And, and bringing a person on is more than just hiring an employee. You're actually hiring like a part of the company that you're trying to build, a part of the culture, a part of the, um, you know, whatever it might be. And a CMO is obviously quite a senior part of that puzzle um yeah really really interesting one of the challenges of being a marketing leader these days is that attribution is getting increasingly more challenging it's hard to correlate if i do this type of marketing it's going to directly lead to these outcomes and many entrepreneurs are still in that mindset but today you could be doing lots of different things and not see the direct result but as a as a group of activities, they lend each other to driving the goals that you want to get. And Chris Walker talks a lot about dark social and dark web on the yeah. fact that there's a lot of conversations about your product, about your industry happening without you even knowing it. So in many respects, marketing is a leap of faith that if you're a CEO and you're looking to quantify marketing performance, it's it can be pretty hard to do sometimes. Yeah. And, and that means that's why you need a really strong relationship to understand that You've got a plan of attack and that you're on your way to executing and they just have to believe that it will work. And yeah. then if it doesn't work, then you can reload. Yeah, then you can sort of reset and go again. Makes sense. Um, you, I mean, you kind of touched on things a little bit there. Um, I'm really glad you brought up like, the, the attribution thing. I haven't had a chance to get into this with many people uh, recently, but like my beliefs is that like attribution does help. It's, it, it's you know a great tool if you can get it set up right. 
but it shouldn't be the be all and end all and a, a bit like you said there with like the dark social and stuff like that actually a lot of your marketing work is gonna you know it, it, it's, it's gonna be Im- embedding the message in people's minds that you're not going to be able to track it's going to inspire conversations that you'll never know have are taking place and uh and you kind of need to have faith in the system and in branding and stuff like that um but, but i'd love to hear your thoughts on, on on sort of the importance of attribution and how much it should be considered well if you go back 10 years when data started to emerge as the way that marketing was measured and quantified the pendulum swung hard from brand to data. And a lot of marketers have spent a lot of time looking at dashboards, very pretty dashboards with lots of bells and whistles and and red lines and green lines. And that's really driven a lot of their marketing strategies and tactical decisions. And I think, although I'm biased, is that the pendulum had swung way too hard to data and that every decision was predicated on, on on data and that's a mistake because marketing sometimes is anecdotal sometimes it's just doing the right things at the right time and i'm sort of emboldened by the fact that marketing has re- sort of starting to return more to a balance between brand and data and that as you mentioned you know creating positioning your your brand in the mind of the consumers as one of the logical options how, regardless of how you do that matters whether it's billboards or direct mail or television commercials or digital marketing it's all about positioning yourself as one of the things that they should explore when they're looking at a new solution so yes data matters but it needs to be a balancing act between data and non-data stuff that can be quantified and stuff that can be qualified and and understanding that lots of marketing is is successful for lots of different reasons and it's, it's just not one thing it's lots of things you touched on positioning there you've got you work a lot in positioning yourself um definitely something that i would like to circle circle back to in a second before we go into that um let's just sort of stick with the the fractional cmo thing for a little bit um because like like i said at the start like starting to see a lot more fractional cmos in in the space at the moment and trying to find the right fractional cmo um is quite difficult but when i spoke to you before you kind of had like a backwards opinion about fractional CMOs um, that I'll kind of let you take lead on. Um, but that was really interesting to me. So a couple of years ago, I repositioned or rebranded myself fractional CMO because I found that calling myself a digital marketing consultant or a positioning expert or a brand storyteller didn't work. It, it just wasn't attracting conversations or leads. As a small business owner, that's a bad place to be, as you can, as you will understand. So I, I called myself a fractional CMO and that was a game changer because all of a sudden they saw me as a marketing leader who could provide. And over the last couple of years, to be honest with you, I'm somewhat sort of ambivalent about fractional CMOs and whether the model actually works. So for like for some companies, the, the, the reality is some companies can get away with a fractional CMO because they're small, they don't need to pay someone full-time wage. They don't even need a full-time marketing leader. They just need somebody to do tactical execution. And so the, the question is, can does it make sense for them to hire a fractional CMO who can cost anywhere from five to $15,000? Probably not. And as a, as a company grows, what they probably need is not a fractional CMO, but a, but a, but a strategic advisor who's a less expensive option who will work with internal marketing teams or 
freelancers and contractors. And you can probably get pretty good bang for the buck without ha having, having to offer a fractional CMO. I think where the fractional CMO model really works is it fills a gap. So you've got momentum, you've got sales, uh, you, all the signals are pointing to the fact that you should hire a fractional CMO, but you're just not ready yet. It, it just doesn't make sense financially or the timing's not right, but you've got a three to six to nine month gap and you you need a way to fill it before you hire sure. a full-time fractional CMO. So that's when you would hire a fractional in an ideal uh, situation is that you find someone who has the right skill set. They can just do all the grunt work, the dirty work, you know, doing the brand positioning, setting up the systems and processes uh, and, and hiring, making sure you have generally the right people. So when the full-time person comes, they're ready to go. Like, and they're the yeah. person who will, who will pull the levers and twist the dials 24 seven. Cause ultimately I think that fast growing companies that are embracing aggressively embracing marketing need someone at the helm all the time. It's not a part-time job. It's really hard. Some companies can get away with it. I just don't think fast growing companies can, can do it. And it doesn't, it's probably not the way, right way to go. Yeah, no. Um, in my experience, I think the, even on smaller teams, um, so, you know, I've worked with teams sort of ranging from free to, 15 marketers so not huge teams by any means but um but even on those smaller teams like you really need to have those seasoned marketers that are permanent employees and really understand the business and the culture and the audience um over the long period of time rather than just you know sort of dropping in and out so that makes yeah, a lot of sense yeah i mean i mean it doesn't sound like a great way to do business but when i've been approached by companies i've talked them out of hiring me as a fractional cmo <laughs> that's an awful it, way to do business <laughs> it's an awful way it doesn't really do much for your revenue but the reality is is that is that if you're going to hire me if you hire me as a fractional cmo it's an expensive hire and it's probably overkill for many companies so what i advise them to do especially if they've got internal resources is hire me as a strategic advisor and let me work with your people let me make sure that they're following best practices let me brainstorm and guide them but ultimately they'll drive marketing and it's a it's a great situation because it allows the ceo or entrepreneur to work with the marketing leader but not feel like they're they're having to pay an expensive bill every each and every month because every dollar counts especially when you're a small company and and marketing is often seen as a luxury as yep. opposed to a necessity so it's often a better model. I'm not sure it's a great way of doing business, but it's just a model that I feel works better because it's what they need at that time. And if they have greater needs and they need more time, then maybe you should hire a fractional CMO for a set period of time. Yeah. Yeah. No, I like that. Uh, and definitely sounds like a better fit for the company. Um, I'm just curious for myself, really. So if I say I owned a SaaS company or I was at the helm of a SaaS company uh, and I came to someone like yourself and I was looking to hire you um, and you said to me like look you can hire me as a fractional CMO but I think you'd be better off hiring me a, as a strategic advisor what what's what are those two different partnerships look like so it's an interesting question because I think at the end of the day it comes down to time and commitment so a, a strategic advisor will probably you know maybe give you 15 to 20 hours of their time. They're not a full-time employee. They're not even a part-time employee. They're just weighing in, ideally working with your internal people or your freelancers and contractors, guiding the entrepreneur who's who's still making most of the, the sales and marketing decisions. A, a fractional CMO may be, you know, maybe 40 hours a month or 60 hours a month. 
And what they're doing, they're, they're taking marketing off the plate of the entrepreneur and CEO. They're basically saying, you got a lot in your plate right now. You're trying to raise money. You're trying to uh, hire more people. You're trying to grow your product. Let me take care of marketing completely. You don't have to worry about it. And I'll work with you for three, six, nine months. I'll work myself out of a job by helping you identify the best person to replace me on a full-time basis. But while we're working together, we'll partner, but you can be comfortable that I'll lead marketing forward. You can, I'll, we'll collaborate, but you don't have to make, you don't have to spend much of your time on marketing. So that's in a simplistic yeah. terms, that's the biggest difference. Okay. Yeah, no, that paints a real clear picture. That's, uh, that's interesting. Cool. Um, so, I mean, you covered a lot of stuff there. Um, all super interesting. Um, and within your role, like of strategy, you sort of covered like your, you approach things focusing on content and position predominantly. Is, is that right? Yeah. So aside, I mean, so, you know, underneath sort of the fractional CMO strategic advisor role, the three areas where I focus on are brand positioning, uh, content-driven strategies and tactical execution. So I believe in the power of brand positioning because I think it underpins everything, not just marketing, but sales, product development, HR, customer success, because it provides a clear and coherent message and narrative when a company goes to market. Uh, I, I, sometimes I feel like I'm I'm sort of leaning, uh, trying to roll a, ro a rock up a, up a big hill because <laughs> brand positioning isn't seen as a as a necessity right now. Yeah. Um, as you know, you know, the focus for entrepreneurs and CEOs is leads, leads and more leads. Yeah. And, and they're leaning hard into tactical execution. Let's spend more money on advertising. Let's create uh, more content. Hey, there's chat GPT. We'll use that to create more content. So it's, it's almost like it feels like brute force. Yeah. And when you talk to them about brand positioning, they say, well, isn't that like a really nice to have marketing exercise around brand? And yeah, it is, but I believe that the smart brands will combine branding and tactical execution. So in the short term, yeah, focus on tactical execution to drive leads, but you also have to have a long-term vision of how you wanna position your brand, how you wanna be perceived in the marketplace, how you're going to outflank the competition who sell the exact same products at the exact same prices as you do. So brand positioning helps you stand out um, otherwise you're not going to be recognized and you'll struggle. So it's, it's important. I just have a hard time convincing a lot of entrepreneurs that they should be <laughs> focused on it right now, which is a tough place to be when you're in that, when that's what you do for a living. Of course. Yeah. Um, just trying to show them that it's important and more important than whatever the next shiny object is. Um, yeah. Yeah. yeah and, and we are, and we are as marketers struggling with the next shiny object, which is generative AI and chat GPT, it really has changed the, I don't know whether I'm hijacking your podcast right now, but it really has changed the marketing landscape by making companies rethink how they do content. And at the same time, a lot of marketers are wondering, well, how do I stay relevant? How do I, how do I work in a, in a world in which content is easily created and, and scalable. And I, if there's a lot of marketers having sort of trying to think, well, what's, what's the next me look like? What's, you know, how do I reinvent myself? And it's, it's volatile, you know, you add into the fact the economic uncertainty right now around marketing, plus this yep. whole other thing going on. And it's, it's a, 
it feels like the wild west it feels yeah very it's, crazy, a, it's a crazy time and uh and i think like pretty much everybody i've spoken to recently they take that same mindset of like what the hell is going on <laughs> um like there's just there's so much going on right now that just um it's hard to get a grip of it all and you know and you covered it there yourself but like the changing landscape of whether it's like google algorithms or whether it's like trying to keep up with whatever the latest um tool for ai content creation is but then at the same time like okay well how do i future proof my career how do i make sure that i'm still going to be relevant in five years time let alone you know the business or whatever um, yeah it feels crazy. like we we all need we all need to retool and i think the on the flip side for a lot of companies when they're dealing with the fact that attribution is more challenging the emergence of of chat gpt and generative ai uh and a lot of the companies i feel are are almost spinning their wheels right now they don't know what to do they 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 just don't know how they can drive their marketing forward because what they do can't be easily measured there's tons of competition demand is soft and it's a very volatile and uncertain landscape and i think there's a lot of uh paralysis right now is companies just aren't sure how to move forward uh, which is not good for marketers or marketing consultants <laughs> it's not good for anybody really um like you say really is like the wild west out there um cool so moving away from uh from that scary thought and uh <laughs> and the bigger uh, the big world of um ai and stuff like that um i would love to sort of pick your brains um and sort of stick with this positioning Thing a little bit positioning is um is really interesting to me and I, I love hearing about how people approach positioning um so i guess if, if you've got a specific um case study or something like that that you have in mind um but but not necessarily how do you it's such a broad question but when you're going into a new business sort of what's the things that you look at what's the steps that you take how do you approach positioning with, with, with a company that you're starting with in simplistic terms, positioning is like putting together the pieces of a puzzle. So if you have a puzzle that's a thousand pieces from the outside looking in, it looks like a lot of work and you're wondering how I'm ever going to find the solution to this puzzle. And when it comes to positioning, there are three key pieces, customers, competitors, and your offering. So what you're trying to do is find out what customers want to experience, what their pains are, what success looks like, so that you're talking to their problems and positioning yourself as the answer to them or positioning yourself as the, the way that they're going to uh, have a, an experience that they, that they want to have. Then you're looking at the com competition uh, in the sense that how do they position themselves? Because you can come up with amazing positioning. We're the best company for these reasons, but if your biggest competitor is already there, then that's not a good place to be. You can't do that. You have to position yeah. yourself differently. And then you have to look at your own product offering and say, okay, so what are our strengths? What are our weaknesses? How do, how do what we do really align with what customers want? And then the wrinkle, and this is the hard part, is how do we position ourselves as different, better, or unique from everybody else in the marketplace to the point where a prospect will look at your offering and go, wow, these guys are worth looking at because they're unlike everybody else. I need to at least talk to them. So that at a high level in a very brief period of time is how I approach positioning. Now, I'll give you an example. So I'm working with a enterprise SEO company and that has 
a couple of really big competitors that they go head to head with. And, and the positioning for all of them is generic. It's all about, you know, we will help you do better at SEO. You can, you can, your keywords will rank higher. Your content will be more relevant. It's very, it's like going to Baskin Robbins and seeing three flavors of ice cream, chocolate, strawberry, and vanilla. Yeah. Not, nothing really stands out. So what we did is, you know, talk to key stakeholders, talk to customers, look at the competitive landscape. And the thing that we came up with and our thesis was around the idea of speed and from two perspectives, right? SEO industry, because of the changes in the Google algorithm and other things like that from an industry perspective, it moves super fast, right? Yeah. So speed matters and it's an important consideration. At the same time, if you're in a company and you're trying to uh, leverage SEO, the faster you can move, the faster you can make decisions based on SEO insight to change your content, to change your meta tags, whatever you're doing, then that matters too. That's really important to your success. So what we did is we rallied around one concept, speed, and the idea that we could accelerate how you did business so you could get better results faster. Simple, right? Seems yep. like a simple concept. Well, that makes sense. But that came out of conversations with 10 executives up and down the organization and sure. talking to six or seven um, you know, customers and looking at the competitive landscape that it takes time. So it looks like it's a simple process, but you need things to distill. And, and, and in time, when you do all these, have all these conversations, themes start to emerge and then you rally around themes that you think are the most exciting. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I really like that approach. And, uh, I'm really cool The like you say, the fact that like, I always, I'm always amazed when I read brand case studies, when I read about positioning or whatever, the outcome always seems like it's the obvious answer. Um, but it obviously that's not the case. Like it takes a lot of work to get to what it looks like the obvious answer, right? Um, you could have jumped in right from the start and said speed spoken to a dozen customers and found out actually they don't care about that at all even though you know you got said so um so yeah really interesting just a couple of thoughts there one is that uh you you often get these hypotheses that you're trying to test when you're doing positioning i think speed is the way to go and then you talk to customers and they're not interested in that at all and the other sort of analogy here is that positioning is like watching ducks on a lake so the ducks are gliding around really gracefully and oh how look how elegant they are and then if you had a camera underneath the surface, they'd be like crazy, right? <laughs> Their feet would be moving like crazy. And that's what positioning is. It's a lot of work that's underneath the surface. But when you're looking at it from the top down, it looks really easy. Hey, that's that's that just makes sense to me. Let's do that, right? Yeah, yeah, and, and that's the clip. That's, um, I love that analogy. That's, uh, that's That really paints a picture um, of how the work's done. And um, yeah, that's really cool. Um, so, uh, something that I always like to ask people whenever this comes up, um, it, you, so you speak about when you're doing your positioning, when you're carrying out your research, obviously a big part of that is speaking to your audience and trying to get their input as well. Um, I'd love to find out a bit more about how you approach audience uh, and customers and, and getting their input um, for your research. So one of the dirty little secrets about customer research is that customers want to talk to you. They are, in my experience, they're enthusiastic about being approached for their insight and their feedback. So one of the keys is they, they're, they're ready to talk to you, but 
the key is that you have to make it clear you're not trying to sell them anything. You're, it's, you're not trying to upsell them. You're, all you want is their ideas and their feedback, both good and bad, and that you value what they have to say. So that's number one. And then I always position as a sort of a conversational, short conversational um, exercise. So it's 20 minutes, gonna ask you some basic questions. And what inevitably happens is they get so excited that they'll give you as much time as you need. So that's kind of like the, the Trojan horse approach to customer research. The other thing is you want to talk to different types of customers. One is talk to new customers who are fresh. They're fresh off that buyer's journey. They have no biases. They're, they know exactly the options that they explored, the triggers that made them look for a new um, solution, and, and ultimately why they picked you. You want to talk to customers who have been using the product and understand the value and can articulate the benefits and the features that work best for them. And maybe even you want to talk to customers who through whether you've done NPS scores or things like that, or customers who've left, you want to talk to them about why they're unhappy. And what is it about your product and service that is not meeting their needs? And it gives you that 360 view of the world. Yeah. Um, because if you only talk to one type of customer, you get one story. And, yeah. and that there's danger in that. Of course there is um and that last bit was was real nice um I've, I've asked a few people that question um over the past couple of months or so and sort of tried to delve into the world of customer research a bit more and uh and sort of see how different people approach it and i think you're the first person that sort of flagged speaking to unhappy customers and i guess that's there's so much that can be taken from that right yeah, and i think a lot of it's, just, it's funny because i think in my experience a lot uh many entrepreneurs and ceos are reluctant to engage with their customers because they have them in the fold they're seemingly happy and you don't want to upset the apple cart you don't want to cause them give them any reason to complain about your product because once they start thinking about well maybe your product's no, not so good after all they'll start to change their minds and so when i do positioning exercises one of the challenges is is, is convincing entrepreneurs that it's good for me to talk to your customers and it's actually even better if i can talk to them without you being on the call so that the customer feels like they can talk, you know, in a very, um, you know, blunt way without offending the CEO. And many CEOs push back, like, why do you want to talk to my customers? Why would I let a third party like you, why would I trust you to talk to my customers? And it's like, oh, you're paying me. You should, you should let me talk to them. Yeah. But once they overcome, once they see that the outcomes, once they say, well, I talked to your customer and they told me this, 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 and this, they go, they did. Like, <laughs> it's pretty amazing like how surprised they are when they see what customers say. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine um, sort of a whole new level of insight that they probably won't even, had no idea what was going on. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, um, really cool. And uh, uh, an interesting to, to see like the way that you approached um, like that, the business with the SEO and stuff like that. Um, so I'm gonna, I'll, I'll kick things off with a, a, a new one, I guess. Um, so going back to the theme of um, AI content and uh, things like ChatGPT, do you think the tools that are coming out now are going to be the tools that we continue to use? Do you think there's going to be sort of um, a, a breakthrough in that space? Or, or do you think it's just the more the concept that we need to sort of get on board with? As I said earlier, it's the wild rust right now for yeah. marketing and AI is changing everything. But I think there are many, many companies that are embracing AI, many companies are leveraging their own 
uh, language models to mm -hmm. drive AI. And a couple of things are going to emerge. A couple of theme, themes are going to emerge. One is that companies like Google and Microsoft that already have large user bases, they're the ones that are going to be able to populate their AI solutions the best. Because if you're already using Google, why would you use a third-party solution when you can get the same services from Google, same goes from Microsoft? So that's one thing. The other side of it is that AI is a tool. It's a technology. And that if for people that are that use ChatGPT, they're they're already sensing that the the UX is 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 challenging. The outcomes are inconsistent. It depends on how you prompt the technology. So I think the other class of companies that are going to that are be successful at ChatGPT are going to be companies with tremendous with great UX that have yep. user friendly ways that allow you to get value from the application right away. So a, a great example is a company called WordTune. And it's kind of like Grammarly, but it allows you to rephrase and, and reimagine your sentences and paragraphs and actually create content. They have new features that allow you to create content. What's great about WordTune is that the interface is, is user-friendly, it's, it's easy to use, and that it, you forget about the fact that it's an AI tool. Yeah. Just like you forget about the fact that when you use Grammarly to fix your grammar and spelling, it's an AI tool. Of right? course it is, yeah. Um, but it's delightful to use, and I think those type of companies, along with the big tech companies, are going to dominate the, the the AI landscape. Yeah, interesting take. Um, and uh, I guess on the same thing, um, I mean, I kind of saw the enthusiasm or, or, or sort of the thoughts and stuff coming through there a little bit. But I'm really curious. You, I mean, you've got a journalism background. You're somebody that's um, sort of come through this, like focusing on content. Um, how do you feel personally about sort of the rise of AI uh, and um, as a creative, how do you feel about that, I, I suppose? AI is something that excites me and terrifies me at the same time. <laughs> so as a content creator, I, I recognize that in time as generative AI improves that it'll do a, the robots will do a better and better job of creating content. But I still think there's a role for creativity there's a role for writers who can tell good stories and that can do things that capture the imaginations and the interests of readers. So I still think the human generated content supported by AI tools, which will make us more efficient and, and more productive is the future. I think that a lot of AI generated content still needs editing still needs a third party to overlook it. So there's probably, in some respects, there's a happy medium where the technology and people can work together. But for a lot of content, copywriting, ad copy, email marketing, SEO-driven content, a lot of that can be done by the robots. Like yeah. and it, 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 will, it will eliminate a lot of grunt work, like low-cost commodity grunt work, and allow content creators to focus on value-added, insightful content. So I'm an optimist as a content <laughs> creator and hoping that it, it'll be lead to a better and, and different world. Uh, but at the same time, you know, there's also the fear that that the robots will become better and and make us irrelevant. But but I'm I can't I refuse, I refuse, <laughs> hoping I refuse, that doesn't I, happen. <laughs> I refuse to think that way. That would just be the end of life as we know. <laughs> okay. Um that's uh it's been really interesting and uh really cool to sort of hear your insights and and sort of pick your brains for a little while. Um so I think that's pretty much everything that I wanted to talk about today. Um, but is there anything that you wanted to share with the audience? Is there 
Um, anything you've got going on at the moment that you want to talk about? Well, first, thanks for having me on the podcast. It's We covered a lot of ground in a, in a short period of time. I hope we didn't bounce around too much because there's so much to talk about. Yeah. <laughs> uh, in terms of companies that I work with, I work with B2B and B2B SaaS companies, most of them under $5 million in sales, doing no or little marketing. And, and right now, they probably have no clue about what they want to do. So providing them with strategic and tactical support, helping them figure out what kind of marketing should we be doing, you know, how should we position ourselves? What kind of stories should we be telling so that we can break through this this noisy landscape right now? Uh, and the only thing other to tell you is I just published the second edition of my book called Marketing Spark. Uh, it's It was something, as a, as a creator, one thing you recognize is that all the work that you've done before is crap and that it could always be better. So, so the unofficial working title for the book is uh, A Better Grammar, Fewer Spelling Mistakes. So it's, uh, it's, so it's available on Amazon to check it out. I like it. Brilliant. All right. Okay. Okay. Well, thanks for coming on, Mark. And uh, it was great talking to you. Yeah. Thanks for having me.